0: coming up next on the GeoTrack podcast.
1: If a grower has a chilly field well-established and that field is suddenly flooded from a heavy monsoonal rainfall, if that water sits in the field for a few hours, that field, the entire field will die. <laughs> so, so for that reason, not only do growers, uh, you know, uh, laser level and, uh, and grade their fields for good drainage, they will actually go out there and pump the water off the fields as quickly as they can to prevent that from happening.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to GeoTrek podcast number 37. This is episode three in a three-part series on the U.S. state of New Mexico. This podcast focuses on New Mexico's robust chili pepper industry, featuring an interview with Dr. Stephanie Walker, extension vegetable specialist at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Before we get to the interview, we wanted to ask you to please subscribe to the GeoTrek podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us track progress, which enables us to make more professional partnerships moving forward. This ensures many more episodes of the GeoTrek podcast in the future. Now come join me in the passenger seat as we journey back to the land of enchantment for one last episode in our three-part series on New Mexico. This podcast series on New Mexico has been really interesting. We started with Podcast 35, which focused on the history of an old railroad town, Santa Rosa, New Mexico, nearly a two-hour drive east of Albuquerque on I-40. Then Episode 36 discovered the innovative work conducted by students at the University of New Mexico to design and deploy sensors to better predict flooding. This new Episode 37 focuses on New Mexico's robust chili pepper industry. When I was out in New Mexico to record these podcasts, I noticed that chili peppers are used prolifically in most New Mexico dishes. They show up in omelets, burritos, enchiladas, tacos, chili stew, Frito pie, and even on cheeseburgers. My last afternoon in the state, I actually had a green chili cheeseburger right before I hit the road. It was delicious. All of this talk about chili peppers not only made me hungry, it also made me curious about the history of this industry, innovations in the agricultural sector of chili peppers, and impacts of extreme weather like droughts and flood on this crop. My questions led me to Dr. Stephanie Walker, extension vegetable specialist at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Dr. Walker's primary research interests include genetics and breeding of chili peppers, vegetable mechanization, enhancing pigment content, post-harvest quality, and irrigation efficiency. She is also co-director of the Chili Pepper Institute, housed at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces. If you're into agriculture, agronomy or food history, you're really gonna enjoy this episode. There's also a hidden secret that chili peppers hold that relates to resiliency and overcoming hardship. This is a lesson that all of us can learn from. Now let's join my conversation with Dr. Stephanie Walker. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. We are really excited to talk to you. Stephanie, you are the extension vegetable specialist at New Mexico State University. I wanted to start by briefly walking through your life. How did you get interested in horticulture and agronomy? Is this something you were always interested in when you were, for example, growing up as a kid?
1: Uh, no, uh, definitely not. I mean, I always liked plants, but uh, no, I, I remember the very first garden I planted as a school project back in high school was destroyed by my brother's puppy. So it was kind of a, a rough start in my horticulture career. I, I really came to horticulture because I fell in love with chili peppers actually. So um, I actually got my under, undergraduate degree at New Mexico State University in biology and I was very interested in microbiology. And uh, I actually took a job after I finished my undergraduate degree at a very large chili pepper processing plant uh, that pack- packaged the old El Paso brand as well as other uh, brands of chili. And I guess after watching tons and tons of chili you know, during our, our packing season for many years, I, I just really became interested in it and wanted to uh, know more. So I went back to graduate school and uh, worked at New Mexico State University under Dr. Paul Bosland uh, for both my my master's and my PhD. And through there, I really became a horticulturalist and learned to love uh, other aspects of, of horticulture research.
0: Well, that's really interesting. So you were really interested in chili peppers all the way. So what was the focus of your research then at the university?
1: Okay, well, it was interesting, you know, uh, when I went back to graduate school, um, I wanted to work on on basically new chili varieties that would de-stem more easily. And that sounds really strange if you don't kind of know the backstory, but you know, when, when green chili, New Mexico green chili is packaged, through processing plants, it has to have the stems removed before it goes through the uh, processing lines. We had a lot of trouble with uh, certain varieties that the stems were very difficult to get out uh, out of the product. And this is normally done out during the uh, hand harvest of green chili where a person will grab a fruit off of the plant and then pop that stem off. And you know, if you keep the stems in the product, uh, I think everyone's probably had the experience of biting down on a stem when they're eating salsa or enchiladas or green chili stew. Approach Paul Bos and say, I wanted to uh, work on new varieties that the the stem could be removed more easily uh, by the laborers out in the field. And uh, he basically informed me at the time that that was uh, mechanization and mechanization research was uh, not funded at the time. We weren't allowed to work on that. Uh, but uh, Paul Boson saw my background with mic- microbiology, and so he, uh, he said, well, here, I have a great slot here, here for you to work on the genetics of resistance to uh, chili wilt, or Phytophthora capsici." So that was my master's. There was funding for that. Uh, I was able to uh, determine how many genes uh, basically coded for, for resistance in Phytophthora capsici chili wilt resistance. Uh, After I finished my master's, though, um, I went to work for another breeder at New Mexico State University, Dr. Marisa Wall, who was working on sweet onion breeding and paprika breeding, and uh, she left uh, after being with her two or three years, and then I I basically uh, was... put in the job of an Extension Vegetable Specialist, at which time I started my PhD. And now I had my own funding, I could research anything I wanted for my PhD, essentially, as long as the uh, industry supported it. So I wanted to work on mechanical harvest of paprika and red chili. So essentially, that's, that was kind of my start with the mechanization, mechanization research. And uh, since then, I continue to work on mechanization research. And the last, uh, oh, about 12 to 15 years is focused on mechanization of New Mexico green chili.
0: So, Stephanie, when you say mechanization, I'm picturing ways that like technology or uh, like essentially uh, mechanically we can harvest this possibly faster and more efficient than before.
1: Yes, yes. So, you know, about the time I was finishing my, my doctoral research in, in red chili and paprika mechanical harvest, that, that segment of the industry really switched from being a completely hand harvested crop to being mostly uh, mechanically harvest, ha- harvested. And, you know, And this has been really important because, um, you know, as with uh, specialty crops in the United States and throughout the developed world, Growers, growers and processors just really cannot get the laborers in the quantity at the time they need to get their crops in, so with a lot of crops, if you can mechanize it, it really make, puts us in a really good position in the United States to be competitive on a world market if we 're dependent on on hand uh, hand harvest crews to get our crops in it's it 's almost impossible to even harvest crops some years in fact you know there 's been a you know, serious losses to growers of uh, chili and other crops when they just haven't had the people they've needed to get out the crop from the field at the time they needed to.
0: Stephanie, how does it work with the infrastructure for mechanized harvest? So for example, would farmers own all of their equipment? Would they rent it? Would they lease it out? Do they have, you know, networks for sharing harvesting equipment when you need it? I mean, how does that work?
1: Oh, goodness, you know, it's, it's gone. Uh, there's many different uh, things that have been tried. I guess I can speak on our current uh, situation with New Mexico red chili and paprika. In that case, uh, the growers own their own equipment. Uh, we have had people come in here who that's their business is harvesting the crop. It's called a uh, the customized harvesters, in which case they'd be hired by the growers. Uh, Those uh, pushes haven't really gelled. Uh, There's also been talk about having the processors have the machine, and for the most part uh, that, that stopped. It just didn't really work out. You know, most of the growers prefer to be in the driver's seat to have their equipment so they can use it when they need to use it on what they need to use it.
0: You know, this is is a little bit different than chili peppers, but I actually used to live on a dairy farm in Pennsylvania. And I remember the first time that I lived there on this farm through the harvest, it was like 2.30 in the morning. And I thought why does, why does my clock say two 30? I hear tractors working. I didn't realize they were literally working around the clock. You know, there was this window, I think of about four days where, and they explained to me, you know, they're looking for the exact time when the harvest is ripe, when the crop is dry, you know, when you're going to have a window without rain. And when you get that window, you you're going, you know, is it similar with a chili harvest? Is it extremely time sensitive that you really want to get the crop in a very short window or is it a little broader than that?
1: Yeah. Well, not quite as narrow as four days, but, uh, yeah, within a week, uh, you really need to get the green chili out because there's a, a pretty, pretty slim window before that green chili fruit starts turning red. And, uh, Red chili here really is a different beast than our green chili, so it, it really loses its value for the growers if it turns over from red to green. I mean there there are some outlets. sometimes red chili processors will take it, but usually it represents a really big loss for the growers. So yeah, it's very time time sensitive, and you need a lot of people <laughs> during that limited window to uh, get in there and get the crop out.
0: Stephanie, could you educate us on this or the difference between red and green chili? I mean, are they actually different plants or are they you know similar plants that are just harvested at different times?
1: Sure. So, you know, historically in New Mexico and uh, uh, this region, this growing region, uh, we would have the dual purpose chilies. We're, we're back before the mid 80s, say, where you grow a. A variety for green, the grower would go in and harvest once or twice and get the green harvest off and then allow the remaining fruit to turn red and get the red harvest off. Well, what happened is, uh, as the industries grew, they quickly discovered that the quality attributes that you need for a good New Mexico green chili are very different than the attributes you need for a good New Mexico red or paprika crop. So, if you get a real, if you breed a new green chili variety, it's going to tend to be very thick uh you know, very uh, succulent. And for the red chili harvest, uh, they really want to dry most of this material down. So the red chili paprika, it's virtually all dried down. And it's very energy intensive and difficult to dry down these squishy green chili varieties. So essentially the green chili industry started getting varieties that were selectively bred for thick-meated use, uh, good-sized fruit, about Riano size, whereas the red chili and paprika segment of the industry were proprietarily uh, creating new red chili paprika varieties that were more thin-walled, Uh, Dried down well. Uh, Typically, they're very low in pungency because a lot of the material is used as a a natural red food colorant. And it would dry very well, Uh, it would work very efficiently through the plant with uh, minimal uh, energy cost to dry the material down. Oh,
0: that's really interesting. So, yeah,
1: so now, yeah, Yeah. so green chili, I mean, green chili will turn red, but just uh, they're different bees between a good green chili variety versus a good red chili variety.
0: So when I was here in the Land of Enchantment, New Mexico, and, you know, several people were talking to me about the differences between red and green. And actually a friend I made that works at a restaurant in Santa Rosa, New Mexico, east of Albuquerque, he said he had this opinion. You know, a lot of people choose their preference if they're a green chili person or a red chili person. And he seemed a little opinionated about that. I don't know. Do you agree with that or do a lot of people just, uh, you know, kind of like them both?
1: Well, I agree it, that a lot of people are very opinionated about it. But I uh, know definitely a lot of people like both. You know, whenever I'm asked if I prefer green or red, you know, for me, it really depends on who's preparing the dish. Like, I'll have certain restaurants here that I love their green sauce, other restaurants that I love their red sauce. Uh, if I'm going to a restaurant for the first time, I usually order Christmas so I can see if I prefer their green or if I prefer their red sauce. And, uh, you know, the other thing about which is hotter or milder, you know, that's variety dependent. So you can have a very hot green or a very mild green or a very hot red or a very mild red sauce.
0: Oh, so if you kind of have a variety, like you said, you might order Christmas, you're getting both and then you could kind of try it out with their different dishes.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Yeah, that seems like a good approach. Uh, so I noticed in a lot of different restaurants throughout New Mexico, they'd be putting a lot of greens on things even like cheeseburgers and enchiladas. And it seemed like greens were going in a lot of things. I didn't necessarily see reds on that same menu. You know,
1: green chili is is often used as a, as an added vegetable topping on things. Uh, as I mentioned before, you know, red chili and paprika for the most part is powdered or dried down. So you actually get red chili and paprika, a lot of products you might not even think of, you know, like as a colorant in mayonnaise and, uh, and pepperoni, uh, you know, virtually any uh, food substance that has a reddish tinge to it with a, a natural red food coloring has paprika. So, so for that reason, you know, red chili is more powdered. So it's something you would sprinkle on or blend in, but green chili is treated more as a vegetable. So it's used as the topping on things. And you're absolutely right here in New Mexico, Uh, The vast majority of the population likes green chili in everything, you know, uh, eggs, certainly green chili cheeseburgers are one of our big dishes. I know my uh, my daughter uh, went to Ohio to go to school recently and her first comment from Ohio was, hey, I can order something in the menu that doesn't have green chili in it. (laughs) And so so other parts of the country are still getting clued in about how uh, how great it is to add green chili to enhance the flavor of a wide variety of dishes.
0: So it's so widespread in New Mexico that it sounds like you're saying you would really find it almost on every menu.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, myself, uh, most of my friends and colleagues here will eat chili every day, practically in every meal in some form.
0: That is amazing. So chili peppers have really become associated so closely with New Mexico. Could you share a little of the history of of how that happened? I mean, uh, you know, for example, is, is that how did that become such a predominant agricultural sector in that part of the country?
1: Oh, sure. Well, well green chili, I, I, I should say chili in general, has, has deep historic roots here for this part of the world. And actually, chili was here in what is now New Mexico long before there was a the United States, essentially. It's, um, you know, chili peppers, they're a, they're a new world crop. They had their origins in South America. Initially, of course, the seed was spread by birds. I don't know if you want me to get into the whole bird bird pepper us. Uh, a story, but uh, eventually when humans discovered chili peppers, they started trading seed. It came up to Mexico. It was traded up and down the Rio Grande Corridor. And we know that the, uh, we don't know for sure if uh, Native Americans actually first introduced seed into what is now New Mexico, but we do know when the early Spanish Mm -hmm. explorers first came to this region that they started keeping the written records saying we're bringing chili pepper seed with us up here to New Mexico. And essentially, and the communities throughout New Mexico took this seed and over hundreds of years. So, it's, so chili peppers have been in this part of the world for more than 400 years. And many communities around the state actually have their own seed that after hundreds of years of seed saving, uh, they've basically developed land-raised chilies that are very well adapted to the growing area specific to their community. So we have the, this amazing uh, Chimayo chili is one of the famous ones from Northern New Mexico. So these communities are very um, uh, protective of their, their varieties. So they, they save seed from the types they like, the flavor they like, the heat level they like. And it's a very uh, you know, sought after specialty crop. So this has been going on for more than 400 years. But around 1900, we actually had a gentleman, uh, Fabian Garcia, who was in the very first graduating class at the New Mexico School of Agriculture and Mechanic Arts that is now New Mexico State University, Uh, Fabian Garcia became the very first head at the Ag Science Center at New Mexico State University. And he was a really forward-thinking researcher. Uh, He actually was one of the first people to bring pecan trees, to introduce uh, uh, onions here to this part of the world. But he saw a lot of these uh, very um, variable chili pepper land races growing around. And he realized that if uh, he could, through selective breeding, create varieties that were more more predictable. So when a grower planted the seed, they'd know what they would get, Uh, get a more uniform fruit size, uh, slightly lower heat level to to, uh, appeal to a wider uh, audience, that that may really help the local growers. So through his breeding work, he developed New Mexico number nine and uh, New Mexico number nine was the first predictable New Mexico pod type chili. And through that, the growers started growing it. Uh, people started canning it and preserving this crop. And that really kicked off the whole, um, I guess the, the widespread fame of New Mexico Chile, when, when you can actually preserve this, uh, keep it, sell it far and wide. Uh, Particularly, uh, uh, Mr. Franzoi in the Hatch Valley, uh, him and his family started growing and working with uh, New Mexico School of Agriculture and Mechanic Arts, and they actually established then the Hatch Chili Festival, and so that's why, uh, because of these New Mexico chili varieties growing in Hatch, that's how the Hatch name has become tightly associated with this very uh, delicious, high-quality New Mexico chili.
0: That's really interesting. It sounds like the chili has actually become genetically like adapted for the local environment out there.
1: Oh, yes. Well, especially the land races. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, we've had, um, you know, New Mexico State University is very proud of the fact that we've had an ongoing chili pepper breeding program since Fabian Garcia's time. So this has been going on. Uh, well over 100 years now and as you're selectively breeding for a particular area you know you you come up with varieties that do better they're more tolerant of local stresses uh, they can withstand diseases and pest pressure better and uh, and so yeah so these new mexico varieties uh, grow very very well here in new mexico
0: stephanie how localized are those pressures and stresses? For example, pests. I mean, does that change considerably, say from one part of the state to another?
1: Oh, quite a bit, yeah. In fact, um, you know, the, the farther up in Northern New Mexico you go, of course they have a relatively shorter uh, warm season growing period. So that's one thing about the land-raised chilies I mentioned is through uh, the process of saving seed, season after season for hundreds of years, uh, the land raised chili varieties have a very, very quick time to maturity. Uh, the seedlings germinate very quickly. Uh, as far as green chili, you know, here in the south, it, it's very hot. We have very harsh, um, stressful conditions in the south. You know, it, we're a high desert, we have high light intensity, um, you know, alkaline soil, saline soil, a lot of stresses that really. Uh, you know, working on the chili pepper plants really brings out their heat, because heat uh, will become hotter in chili peppers that are growing in in stressful conditions, as well as a lot of the flavors that we get. So oftentimes if people take a New Mexico chili, take it to another part of the country where it uh, isn't subjected to the same environmental stresses, it may not be quite as flavorful, uh, quite as hot as a New Mexico chili that's grown in Southern New Mexico.
0: That's really interesting. And, you know, now that we're talking about these environmental conditions at GeoTrek, a big focus of what we look at are, you know, extreme weather disasters, but also trying to understand just the, the impacts of weather and climate on all these different sectors, including agriculture. So like when you could think of, say, for chili peppers, do they have optimal conditions? If you're a chili pepper, is there, you know, what would be those optimal conditions that a chili pepper loves or that they would really grow to their full potential in?
1: Oh, sure. So, um, you know, one thing is is chili peppers actually prefer growing in dry conditions as long as they're receiving adequate irrigation. So one thing about uh, peppers that are grown in rainy areas or humid areas, they tend to have a lot more problems with diseases and pests. So here in New Mexico, since we have relatively dry, very dry conditions—not relatively uh, dry conditions—chili uh, peppers will grow very happily as long as they're provided with adequate irrigation water. You know, preferably through drip irrigation or right at the root zone. Uh, so that works best. Uh, chili peppers do prefer to be well-drained. In fact, if you have drainage problems, uh, that's when we get serious disease issues such as chili wilt coming in. Uh, so a sandy loam works great for chili peppers, although they will uh, tolerate a wide variety of soil types, you know, as long as it is well-drained and uh, deep, uh, deep soil profile for those roots to, uh, to grow in.
0: In general, so I've seen a lot of irrigation when I've been out in New Mexico looking at agriculture. In general, do you think they'd be watered daily? I mean, the the sun angles are incredible this time of the year. It seems like very intense solar radiation. Would they be watered even like daily or multiple times per day this time of the year?
1: Uh, Usually not. Usually the growers are on drip irrigation. It's usually about every other day. Uh, Because you remember, because the soil where the uh, roots are growing is going to be moist, even at the top of the soil has dried out somewhat. If you're flood furrow irrigating, which many of our growers still do, uh, that's usually about every week uh, to two weeks, depending if we get rain, depending on how hot it is.
0: And it sounds like you're saying you want a soil, though, that drains pretty well and doesn't really hold a lot of that water.
1: Right, right, and that's uh, one of the big issues we have here with uh, with wet soil conditions is uh, Phytophthora capsici chili wilt. It's the famous chili wilt, and actually, uh, kind of another dubious distinction about New Mexico chili and history is uh, Phytophthora uh, capsici was first identified in a field here in New Mexico, and this is a real devastating disease throughout the world. And we have some really, really hot races that. Uh, uh, can be really hard on our chili production here. Uh, for this reason, when growers set up their field to grow chili, they will laser level the field and make sure there's just enough drainage that any uh, rainfall, uh, any irrigation water on there will quickly run off. Because of Phytophthora capsisi is really a water mold and uh, it spreads and reproduces just uh, explosively when the field's under very wet conditions for for even a few hours.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. So it sounds like these conditions are pretty specific that if you maybe get a little too much moisture for too much time, you can get some of this mold and some of the other issues that are detrimental for the growth of the chili peppers.
1: Oh, absolutely. And yeah, in other parts of uh, the world, other parts of the country, yeah, if I talk through a chili world, it's a serious problem there as well. So they all also work to really control the soil moisture. So it's always a delicate balance. You need to make sure that the chili plants are getting adequate water for healthy growth. But if you overdo it, then you are encouraging disease.
0: You know, now that we're talking about the soil conditions, are there specific soil types that that really are the best? And you've mentioned a few of them that don't work quite as well
1: yeah so certainly you know sandy loam uh, with lots of organic matter so sandy loam helps with drainage if you have more organic matter it does help uh keep the moisture in place without uh without spurring on disease as much as if it was free, free standing water um you know we don't our soils here can be pretty rough so uh so we have excellent excellent growers here who really have great regimes to build their soils season after season and, uh, and that's the way, whether you have a heavy clay or, or a really sandy soil, you know, by uh, adding amendments season after season, growers are really able to make that perfect growing media for chili. Well, and other crops uh,
0: uh, as well. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a lot of research has gone into really knowing what works well and how to make this optimal. What about as far as extreme conditions that limit growth? For example, freezes or, you know, uh, cold weather. I mean, are there geographic limits where you really don't see chili peppers grown outside of a certain region? And, you know, why is that?
1: Yeah, so so certainly, chili peppers are going to give. You, they, they are a very long season crop, so they really grow best in areas that have a, a long warm season growing period, uh, like like southern New Mexico, uh, you know, Florida, uh, southern Arizona. Uh, certainly, you can grow chili peppers at more northern latitudes, but normally that's going to happen if you start with transplants. So if you start with transplants, that's going to give you a. a at least a couple months jump on growth. But if you're direct seeding chili peppers, having it where it's relatively warm is better. Uh, chili peppers are very sensitive to frost, so uh, they'll quickly be killed at freezing temperatures. And, uh, and really speaking on climate change, you know certainly, you know climate change impacts the chili peppers. It impacts all our growers, our producers here in New Mexico, because it's reducing the water, irrigation water that's available during the time of this time of the year that they need it. But another real big issue we've had is erratic weather conditions, uh, such as earlier, late frosts. They're going to cut the season, cut the season short. Uh, we have growers that lose crops to hail uh, increasingly. Uh, so you know, a hailstorm will come out and take out your crop at the wrong time. So there's a lot of a uh, lot of concerns, you know, going forward with that, with how the environment has been changing.
0: Yeah. You know, we're really concerned right now about the drought. It seems like this is a long-term drought in the Southwest. The last I saw, the U.S. drought monitor has classified 95% of New Mexico under severe drought or worse. You know, it's obviously potentially huge impacts for agriculture. And it sounds like you had said, you know, if you can't get enough water for irrigation, that could be a concern. Have, has that been an issue that you've seen on the ground? I mean, have you seen any growers that literally cannot get enough water at this time?
1: Yeah well, yeah, well, yes, uh, certainly, especially growers, uh, smaller growers that have really been dependent on shallow wells or groundwater. Uh, a lot of times they have just not, have not been able to grow a crop. Uh, for the larger growers, typically what they'll have to do is take some of their fields out of production and then use the water that would have gone to that field to water the fields that they do have in production. So so it has, has reduced the amount of um, produce that can be grown.
0: Sure, that makes sense. And I wanted to ask you, too, you'd mentioned about direct seeding. And, you know, sometimes in more northern places, they may do transplants, in more southern, perhaps more direct seeding. If you do direct seeding, chili growth, how long does it take you to grow a mature plant?
1: Okay, so so typically our growers will start direct seeding. Uh, April for sure, but most of the larger growers will start in uh, in March, about mid-March. And then the harvest for green chili begins uh, full force the beginning of August. So what's that, April, May, June, July? Yeah, about five four to five months. So chili is grown as an annual crop. So for green chili, so it's planted in March, typically harvested in August. Uh, Most of the time the growers will get two picks off of those green chili plants. So they'll go and uh, pick all the fruit off and then they can go back a few weeks later and actually get a second uh, flush of fruit that have formed. Uh, for the red chili growers, however, it takes about a month longer on that. So, you know, five, more than five months to get your red chili crop. And uh, that's a once-over harvest. So as soon as uh, 80% or more of the fruit on there are red, mature, uh, they'll go through and pick it. As I mentioned earlier, usually with the machine, and then they, then that's the end. And then the red chili crop can actually be uh, picked after the freeze uh, with green chili, if we have an early freeze, then that's the end of the season. Yeah, that, uh, that basically destroys the quality of uh, any green chili that's still out in the field.
0: Stephanie, it sounds like from what you're saying, getting into like August, September, maybe early October, there would be tons of processing of the green and red chili. I mean, what does that look like in the industry?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. So uh, yeah, I'm sure the uh, green chili guys are gearing up right now to get their first New Mexico harvest. I did just hear that uh, some growers will get a particularly early start on the green harvest by starting with transplants. So it'll be about July 20th when the green chili harvest kicks off. Uh, And actually, as I also mentioned, I used to work in a green chili processing plant and fresh pack was our busy time. So we would work six or seven day weeks around the clock, you know, three shifts. And uh, so back when I was in my 20s, I could handle third shift. And now I think it would really put me on my backside.
0: So you're saying you're not you're not working around the clock anymore during during uh, midnight shifts anymore.
1: No, third shift. No, I prefer to sleep during the third shift these days.
0: Yeah, I hear you. That's really interesting, though. It seems like you've worked in a lot of different aspects of the industry. And it's, it's interesting, too, to think about how, you know, seeds are planted, how the crop is grown and then processing and then sales and really a whole industry out there in New Mexico, really all around Chile.
1: Yes, oh yes. As you mentioned, we have the historic roots, and it continues to really be uh, an economic driver here, as well as just kind of uh, New Mexicans' pr- pride and joy. You know, <laughs> people are very proud of our, our excellent chili here in the state.
0: And uh, let's talk a little bit about how this works out with the university and also the Chili Pepper Institute. I know you're affiliated with them. You do a lot of, I think, research and work and education and outreach with them. Could you share a little bit about the institute?
1: Sure. So, uh, and I'm actually now the co-director of the New Mexico uh, Chili Pepper Institute. Uh, our new chili breeder, who took our uh, our longtime chili breeder Paul Boslin's position after Paul Boslin retired, uh, Dr. Dennis Lozada is our is the other co-director of the Chili Pepper Institute, and uh, Paul Boslin, our previous chili pepper breeder. Uh, basically established the Chili Pepper Institute as an international research-based organization uh, that basically is kind of the hub of all research, uh, educational materials, and the archive of all this uh, educational materials dealing with chili peppers. So so currently today, we actually also have a store. So if people want to buy uh, seed packets of many New Mexico type varieties, as well as chili peppers from around the world, they can get that through the Chili Pepper Institute, as well as the Chili Pepper Institute's website. Uh, The Chili Pepper Institute also uh, puts on a yearly uh, New Mexico chili conference. So this is a very long-running chili conference that really focuses on production needs uh, for New Mexico, as well as other growing areas. And if you're really a chili head and want to come to the New Mexico Chili Pepper Conference, you can register at the Chili Pepper Institute website. And it always occurs on the first Tuesday of February. So you can have it on your calendar for the long. For the long haul, yeah, and so it's great. It's a it's a one day event with a reception the night before, and we have uh, speakers who are talking about the, their latest research findings. Because of course, here at New Mexico State University, we have a lot of different uh, faculty members, uh, professors who are working on chili pepper research projects. So they get to tell uh, tell the the growers, industry folks, uh, what they've they've learned. Yeah, so Hal, so yes, please come and join us at first Tuesday of February uh, at the Las Cruces Convention Center.
0: Yeah, it sounds great. And I I like that too. You know, I do a lot of hurricane related research. March, April, May, there's a lot of conferences because it's before hurricane season. It sounds like you're saying really the growing season is April through August or September. So February seems like a great time for people interested in this industry to kind of come hear about the latest research. And obviously I'm sure New Mexico is beautiful in february
1: uh, oh absolutely yes stephanie
0: i had a question are there other areas of the world that really have these optimal conditions like new mexico for growing chili peppers where are these locations you know where else in the world are they really growing these types of products
1: oh sure you know in fact uh you know even though you know new mexico we pride ourselves in being the chili a chili capital or the chili capital uh, the United States, in general, is not a top producer of chili peppers. So, uh, India is a huge producer. Um, I think we all know about Hungarian paprika. Uh, the Spanish uh, Spanish growers grow a lot of chili peppers. Uh, Korea, South Korea, is a big producer. Uh, so, you have to keep in mind that, like with our New Mexico chili, different parts of the world have also. Uh, developed their own specific varieties. Uh, that people there like the flavor, they like the heat level, and, and these varieties have been bred to work very well in their particular growing regions of the world. So, you know, once chili peppers uh, were introduced to the old world, they spread around the globe like wildfire, you know, especially some of these countries just really uh, incorporated into their cuisine. Uh, many countries now just the growers can't believe that chili peppers weren't uh, originally from that part of the world because they've been so, uh, so well uh, and uh, integrated into their culture and cuisine. So throughout the world, especially in, in uh, countries that have areas with very long, warm growing seasons, uh, particularly dry warm growing seasons because of the disease issues with the uh, high levels of rain and humidity.
0: Sure. It sounds like it's grown really in many parts of the world, and there are, it sounds like, many different varieties that are maybe adapted to that local geography and climate.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Does, you know, if these other countries producing chili peppers, does that affect the U.S. market for production and sales and things like that. For example, if Mexico has a huge year or maybe some other international locations, does that affect the ability for U.S. growers to sell or do we kind of, you know, self-contain within the U.S. national market?
1: Oh, no, it definitely the world markets absolutely affect New Mexico, especially red chili and paprika. Because with red chili and paprika, uh, you know, it's a dried product. It keeps very well. It's light. It's uh, it ships pretty efficiently. So there certainly have been years in the past where uh, other countries have really uh, been serious competitors for red chili and paprika. Uh, for green chili, New Mexico green chili, that's quite perishable. So uh, processing plants have to process it within uh, 24 hours and usually much quicker than that. So you can't really get that crop. Uh, shipped fresh very easily uh, many growers in Mexico though really we have uh, Mexican partners down in Mexico growers who are excellent excellent chili growers down there who will grow the New Mexico type chili and uh, ship it up up here for our processors or process it down there and so uh, Mexico really is the only competitor but they're not really competitors as much as partners you know to make sure that we have enough of a chili um, a chili harvest that we need for our customers each year.
0: Yeah, that is so fascinating. Stephanie, a couple last questions for you. I wanted to ask one last climate question. Sometimes in, say, late June, early July, we start getting the big monsoon rains that move into the southwest. I know chilies in general, they need to be watered, but they generally like dry soil. Are there ever any uh, detrimental effects of having too much rain in the monsoon season?
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, that's uh, the disease I mentioned earlier, uh, chili wilt, Phytophthora capsici, chili wilt. If if a grower has a chili field well established and that field is suddenly flooded from a heavy monsoonal rainfall, if that water sits in the field for a few hours, that field, the entire field will die. <laughs> so, so for that reason, not only do growers, uh, you know. Uh, laser level and, uh, and grade their fields for good drainage, they will actually go out there and pump the water off the fields as quickly as they can to prevent that from happening. Uh, so absolutely, the monsoon, we love having the rain here because we absolutely need the uh, water, but you can't have that, uh, that heavy, heavy uh, rainfall accumulation sitting in fields or the chilly fields will die.
0: That's amazing that the wilt sets in so quickly. You're saying just a couple hours of standing water could really be the difference.
1: Yes. Oh, yes.
0: Wow. That is amazing. Stephanie, super appreciate you coming on our podcast. Are there any last thoughts or perspectives you'd like to share with listeners? You know, any, any take home messages that they should know about growing chili?
1: Oh, well, just, uh, you know, chili, um, there are certainly are challenges to growing it, but once you get it established they're really pretty tough plants, <laughs> and uh, certainly well worth the, uh, well worth the effort and Of course, you know keep in mind what you want is the finished product and choose your variety accordingly because uh, there's a wide variety of flavor profiles of heat profiles of fruit size, depending what you 're going to do at the end of the pro- uh, end product. And I do invite anyone who, who is in the Las Cruces, New Mexico area in August and September. The Chili Pepper Institute uh, does host a teaching garden every year. And at this teaching garden, we actually have hundreds of different chili pepper varieties from around the world growing side by side. So you can go out and actually see uh, see the difference in these uh, these different beautiful, amazing chili pepper varieties. There are maps on hand so you can see what's what. And uh, the public is... Uh, is open to, to visit this garden. It's at the uh, Fabian Garcia Horticulture Ag Science Center, uh, just really close, a couple blocks from the New Mexico State University campus.
0: Wow, Stephanie, that sounds like a great outreach event for people that really wanna come and see for themselves and really kind of get their hands dirty and kind of see on the ground what's happening and see the differences in these different varieties of chili.
1: Yes, yes, please, please join us.
0: Stephanie, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTruck podcast. We're uh, really excited to continue following your research and the innovations. I was amazed by how much great science is happening, really applied science in the state of New Mexico, and I was telling everyone what a beautiful place it is. Best wishes to you, and uh, we're excited to follow your progress, innovations, and research as you move forward.
1: Well, thank you, Hal. It was a pleasure talking to you today.
0: Stephanie, thank you so much for your insights in this podcast episode. You helped us learn about the history of chili peppers in New Mexico and to see that they've been grown in the region for a really long time. We covered some of the differences between red and green chili, both in appearance and in culinary uses. In this episode, we also touched on weather and climate quite a bit. We learned that chili peppers have an optimal window of precipitation. They really need enough rain either directly from the sky or through irrigation to keep them alive, but they really don't like a prolonged moist environment. Chili peppers do better in drier soils because it reduces the chance that chili wilt will set in, as this can happen quickly when the crop is exposed to standing water. Dr. Walker shared that even a few hours of standing water in a field can kill the entire crop. We learned another subtle lesson about chili peppers in this episode. Dr. Walker taught us that the stresses the crop faces, like strong sun, intense heat, and alkaline soil conditions, actually help the crop produce more spicy heat and flavor. She said that plants that are removed from the region will often produce less heat and flavor if grown in a more temperate climate. This is an interesting concept whereby chili peppers actually produce a more flavorful flavorful product in a stressful environment. It falls under the topic of anti-fragility, a principle whereby some things actually produce a superior product when stressed. Consider the human body. Athletes stress the body through rigorous exercise, but that makes them perform better in places like the football field. Wind stress can actually invigorate a wildfire, but blows out a candle. Author Nassim Taleb discusses this concept in his book called *Antifragile*: Things That Gain from Disorder, and it struck me that in my conversation with Dr. Stephanie Walker that chili peppers also have this resilient quality of anti-fragility. Many would argue that they actually become better when stressed. Thank you so much to our faithful listeners for tuning into this podcast episode. We're always trying to really bring the world to you and help make connections. You know, in the end there where I talked about this principle of being anti-fragile, that can relate to our lives. We've had a lot of stress in the world economically, the pandemic. You know, this concept that actually some businesses started to do better during the pandemic. They actually um, accelerated. They, they actually gain profits. Uh, they're anti-fragile. You added a stressor and they actually improved. Uh, this is something that we see in the crop of Red chili and green chili peppers. So just something to think about. It's a connection that we make here on the podcast to help you make more sense of the world, to give you more inspiration and some more insights into the way things work, both around the world and hopefully in your life. Thank you again to our faithful listeners for tuning in. Join our discussion on social media at our Facebook group called GeoTrek The Community, where we often discuss podcast episodes in an online community. On behalf of the GeoTrek production and marketing team, this is Dr. Hal Needham. Thanks for coming along on these three adventures that we took to New Mexico. and we'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek Podcast. If you're wondering how we come up with such interesting topics each week, we rely on an amazing global community to help direct our scientific fieldwork, articles, and podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic or can connect us to an outstanding future podcast guest, please reach out to us on our website at geo-trek.com or on our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. On behalf of our GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.